this Sunday, we began a four-week emphasis that we call Sowing the Future. It is our stewardship emphasis for next year, 2007, as we look at doing together the things that God is calling us to do and continuing to do the things that God has already called us to do. This campaign is uh, an emphasis is headed by Arnie and Tracy Vardaman, who are here at the 8.30 service this morning, and by uh, Chad and Laura Pazin-Porter. And Chad and Laura have a few words to share with you this morning about their history and life with this church. blessing that this church has been in our lives. Uh, we met in the singles class here at Alamo Heights United Methodist Church about three years ago when I started coming here. I uh, moved to San Antonio for school and I hadn't found a church to uh, set my roots in. And uh, This was the church uh, because of the involvement that it has in the community and because of the mission work and because of the people that I met when I came here in the Sunday school class and also in the small groups. And um, when Chad and I decided to get married, the church supported us through premarital counseling and through a mentoring couple to be sure that we could um, establish a strong and lasting Christian marriage. Around six years ago, I was looking for a church home. Um, after college, I had kind of gotten out of the routine of going to church. I'd grown up in a Christian household, and I knew there was something missing. And a friend that I work with knew a friend that was leading a singles class. Um, so I started going a little bit and got kind of comfortable with the church and uh, started going to the Alpha Course. At that Alpha Course, I, ex- I accepted Christ as my Savior. Um, a few months later, I was asked to lead that singles class. Um, and then through that, I got involved with junior high youth. And I got involved with uh, some of the New Zion choir um, trips that they'd gone on. And it was a great blessing to see how Christ is working in our church's youth life. And then, as we were studying 40 Days of Purpose, I met Laura. And uh, last June, we were married. So this church has been a huge blessing for us, and we just wanted to share that with you guys. And we've seen um, God work in our lives and in this church, and we know that that God is working in this church, and so we're excited about the next year and the plans that God has for all of us. Thank you. Thank you, Laura and Chad. We'll also hear by mail from Laura and Chad and Tracy and Arnie. But this morning we hear from God through the Apostle Paul, who writes to the Corinthians, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. In their September 18th issue on the cover, Time Magazine asked this question. Does God want you to be rich? And as you might imagine, in the article, there was both pro and con. On the pro side, yes, God wants you to be happy, prosperous, and wealthy, came uh, theologians and uh, preachers from a school that might be called Prosperity Theology. Their most public face, of course, is Lakewood Church's Joel Osteen. And some of the Bible verses that they use to support um, uh, their theology are verses like John 10.10, where Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it in abundance. Now, on the con side, those who, to the question, does God want you to be rich, say no, are people like 40 Days of Purpose author Rick Warren, who says that the author that God wants us all to be rich, that idea, says Warren, is baloney. And he goes on to say that your self-worth is never determined by your net worth. And he goes on to point out scriptures such as Jesus saying, pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Does God want you to be rich? Some say yes. Some say no, and this morning I say, well, it all depends. It all depends. It depends on if you are already rich, whether God wanted that or not, God allowed it. God allowed it. God allowed certain things to happen to you and certain other things not to happen to you to put you in the position that you are today. And to think that it was something you did is not only a misreading of Scripture, but it's a pretty basic misreading of life. Luke 16 tells a story about a man who did pretty well, and then he did even better. And so he decided he would retire, and he decided then he'd even have a bigger retirement than he originally planned. So he got ready to build some really big barns and have a really nice retirement. And as you know the story, he died that evening, and everything he left behind went to someone else. We were doing a stewardship campaign in another church many years ago, and we had a guest speaker from another church that came to us. And he was telling the story about his church involved in an important financial campaign. They went to one of the wealthier members of the church and asked him to support this important campaign. And his response was basically, look, this is my money. I made it. I'm a self-made man. I can do with it what I want. And, you know, I don't want to give any to you. I want to use it for me and for my family. The man went on to say, I think that this gentleman was wrong on two accounts. First of all, he had had a mentor and business partner who set him up to succeed in the beginning. And to be self-made was a joke at best because he had had a great deal of support along the way. And secondly, well, he was quite wrong about who it all belonged to anyway because within five months he had died and, well, quite frankly, he didn't get to take any of it with him. Who are the rich might be a more basic question If God has allowed us to be rich, or some to be rich, well, who are the rich? And this is what I'd like to say to you, if you saw the uh, slides from Piedras Negras. If you heard about people who live in boxcars along the train tracks. If you've been to Western Africa with me. If you've walked the Lower Ninth Ward. I want to tell you this, that anybody who has more than the basic necessities of life is wealthy. In Jesus' day, 85 to 90% of the people were on a subsistence income. All they could do was just survive from one day to the next. And so Jesus knew good and well who the rich were. It was the people who didn't have to worry about day-to-day survival. They knew where their next meal was coming from. My wife and I have spent a, a lot of time at different points in our life around the kitchen table talking about retirement accounts or college savings or 529 plans. 
but we've never had to say, can we afford to eat tonight? We are, scripturally speaking, the rich. Does God want us to be that way? Well, God allowed it. We are indeed the rich. So the next question would be, well, in God's economy, why does God allow some to have more than the basic necessities, while others seem to have less than the basic necessities? Why does God allow us to be in the position that we're in today? And I think the biblical answer is very clear. God blesses you with more than the basic necessities so that you can help and bless others who do not have that. God prospers you, in other words, so that you can prosper the causes and the reign and the kingdom of God as it goes forward. Paul put it this way in what I call a seed principle. He says to the Corinthians, God gave me this bumper crop and God will give you seeds for future crops as long as you continue to keep planting on God's behalf. As long as you use what God has given you to bless God and bless others, so indeed God will continue to bless you. Let me put it in another way. This is from Randy Alcorn. Some of you may have seen Randy Alcorn's book on heaven that's about this thick. Well, there's a much better, shorter book on giving called The Treasure Principle, about this thick. And this is what he said. God prospers us not to raise our standard of living. God prospers us to raise our standard of giving. That's just plain and simple Bible, friends. What we have, which every one of us in here probably qualifies, is more than the basic necessities of life. And the reason we have that is so that we can pass it on to others in God's economy and bless them and move the kingdom of God forward. Who are the rich? The fact of the matter is we are. And why did God let us be rich? So we could help and bless others and move the kingdom of God forward. Now some of you are pretty shrewd businessmen and businesswomen, so you're going to say, well, if I make this investment in the kingdom of God, what's my return? Well, that's a legitimate question. I mean, in other aspects of life, we wonder about our returns. Every three months, you know, I look at the different places that I have money and where it's being managed, and I'm looking for returns. And, you know, if it's 8 or 10% in a year, and it does that for 9, 10 years in a row, doubles, I'm pretty happy. And, boy, if I get 30 to 40% of return over a few years, I've had a windfall. But I've never had anybody promise me returns that would go on for eternity. 30 to 40 to 50 percent, 100 percent doubling our investment is nothing that compares to what happens to those who give on a part uh, as a part of God's movement forward. God says basically it works like this. You give and that helps people who are alive today and it goes into your account for tomorrow and the next day and into eternity and it is compounded daily forever. That's a pretty good deal. What we give helps people live today and yet proves a blessing to us forever. And if that's the truth, then it makes pretty good sense to hold on to a little less of the abundance that God has given us and give a little bit more. It's no wonder that the late missionary Jim Elliott said this. He said, A person is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, I don't care how clever you are. Once you die, it's not yours. You can't keep it. You may think you've managed it, but you don't control what someone else is going to do with it. But when you send it ahead for God's purposes, then it goes on forever. You can't lose it. So the next logical question is, if it makes sense 
to invest in the abundance that God has given me, how do I do that? How could I start a life of generosity? Well, let me just make two suggestions this morning. The first one is this. You will need to learn to manage your life. I didn't say manage your money. I said manage your life. They're very close. I learned to manage my life uh, at, at a basic level. When Pam and I first got married, we learned this life management principle. When we get paid, and I got paid $70 a week as a student assistant pastor, what happens is 10% goes into savings. 10% goes for God's use in the church. And we live on 80%. And we just figure out, we manage our life in such a way that that works. 10, 10, 80. We started this in 1977. 30 years later, we're still doing it today. The very first thing, in order to have some of God's abundance to give back, you're going to have to begin to manage your life in, uh, in perhaps uh, a better disciplined way. Second thing is, I think when we are giving, we need to remember what Andy Stanley, who has a church outside of Atlanta, calls the three P's. And I think these are absolutely fundamental to understanding Christian stewardship. The first P is this, that giving is always a priority. That we are priority givers, which means the first of our income, the first of our abundance that God has given us goes back to God. Not the end. A lot of you were with me and we enjoyed Ray Vanderlam teaching us from the Hebrew Bible, from the Old Testament. And he would tell you clearly that one of the basic Old Testament principles is something called first fruits, which is you don't give God what's left over from your crop. As soon as it comes in, the best of the oil, the extra virgin oil, the best of the wine, the best of the crops, it goes to God first. And then you figure out the rest. We become priority givers. The first 10% goes to God. And then we begin to deal. Uh, and deal, I think, more effectively because we've done this with the rest. The second thing about priority giving is this. And that is that God calls us first to give to the church. Now, I know that sounds self-interested. Let me just say two disclaimers. Number one, our church is running ahead of budget, not behind. Second thing is, if all the employees got laid off, I'd probably be the last to go. This is not for me. This is for you. It goes first to the church and then to other kingdom causes. And just because something is tax-exempt does not mean it's a kingdom cause. Before you endow a chemistry building, before you give the football coach or the basketball coach at your university another dollar in their pocket, you need to ask yourself, have I done at the church what God has called me to do? Now, if you have a response to that, you can contact me at Mark Williams. That's mwilliams at ahumc.org. Priority means first through the church. There's only two institutions God has ordained. God has ordained the government. That's what Paul tells us. Friends, they're going to get theirs. They're going to get theirs. And then God has ordained the church to move the kingdom of God forward. And that's more dependent on you responding out of the abundance that God has given you. So the first, the first P is priority. That we do that first before we do other things. The second P is proportional givers. That is, we learn to give a percentage of our income. The biblical standard in the, in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament was 10%. It was interesting, this Time Magazine article, Does God Want You to Become Rich? They surveyed American Christians. And 57% of uh, American Christians disagreed. They said the tithe is not the standard of giving that God wants for the church. 
Um, it was interesting to me, I assume these were advanced biblical scholars who were probably aware of what's going on in Old Testament study. Old Testament study today, there's a great debate as to whether the tithe actually, with all the special offerings that was required, wasn't closer to 13 to 17 to 20 percent of one's income and not a mere 10 percent. So I'm assuming that's what those 57 percent of people were referring to. But for the rest of us, the pretty basic standard is 10 percent. Now, you can't get there overnight. I get that. I know that. Our church didn't get there overnight. When we relocated in 1994, we ran into a great deal of expense to try to expand the kingdom of God, to try to be a blessing to others. And one of the things that happened is outside our Methodist cause giving, which was about 10 to 12 percent of our income, we had no other outreach income. So we disciplined ourselves and we said this year 1 percent of our total budget will be, which was 1.5 at the time, will be given to outreach. And the next year it will be 2% until we get to the full 10. And the rest of that story is not only do we give 350000 something dollars to Methodist causes around the world, we give almost an equal amount to other causes, local and global, because we've disciplined ourselves as a church and we've gotten there. And that's the way we do it as a family as well. Figure out where we are, what percent that is, and we try to grow it so that we can honor God and we can bless others. We become what's called proportional or percentage givers. And the final P, according to Andy Stanley, and I, I think he's probably right on this one, is that God may be call, calling some of us toward what he calls progressive giving. Progressive giving. Which is to say, if you look at tithing and someone has a net income of, uh, or has an income of 100000 they tithe, they've got 90 to live on. Somebody else has an income of 40 and they tithe, they've got 36 to live on. In God's economy, is that how it is to work? And so one wonders if those who have, who have assumed a greater blessing and abundance from God aren't called to move forward. And that means if we're in that position, we have to start asking some pretty hard questions that North American Christians don't typically like to ask. Questions such as, how much is enough? How many thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions do I really need? How nice a car do I have to drive? How big a house? How many A-lists do I have to be on? How close to the courts do my seat have to be? There's a variety of questions we need to begin to ask ourselves because God may be calling us past where we are today. We want to become givers that honor God by doing it first, as best we can, moving toward the proportion that God set for us biblically, and then in conversation with God, begin to wonder and pray about whether God may even be calling us past this point to another point. You may be wondering, well, David, you don't normally talk to us like this. You're right. Two things have occurred to me this week as I've thought about uh, speaking with you, and the two are this. Number one, I realize that every single one of us will give an account to God for what we have done with what God's given us. I'm not saying you're not going to heaven, but I'm saying that's one of the first things that's going to happen there, is you're going to give an account. Now, I'm going to give an account for what we have done or have not done uh, over, over the years with what God has given us. And as I reflected on that, I realized that I'd been here 12 years, and in nine of the 12 years, I really hadn't talked to you very plainly about what Christian stewardship looked like. And so there was a really possibility that you would get to the gates and Peter would talk to you about what you'd done, and you'd say, I never heard that. Now you have. Now you have. Second thing is, I've begun to realize I am responsible. I'm responsible. 
for shepherding you in, in a way not to avoid judgment. Don't get me wrong. There's a bigger issue here. It's missing on the joy. That's a bigger issue. That I am letting a generation of people miss out on the joy of being a part of what God does now and forever. Let me just close by telling you how I think that works. Fifteen years ago, I was pastor in another church, very growing community. It was the largest, uh, county, uh, fastest growing county in Texas at the time. And we knew we needed to open our ministry wider and build larger buildings and bigger doors for what God was bringing to us. By the time we embarked upon this, I was a little nervous and skeptical because I had two children. One was eight, one was four, and what nobody in the congregation knew that fall, but Pam and I knew, is we had a third one on the way. And I thought, you know, already my pockets are shrinking. How can we dig? How can we dig deeper? So Pam and I started keeping a track of everything we spent, every single dime for a month, to try to begin to find ways that we could find more to help the church move forward. Now what was interesting is I don't want to tell you that we were the most generous givers in that campaign. We were not. I do not want to suggest for a moment we were the most sacrificial. We weren't. I could tell you stories of people on fixed incomes and what they did that will keep you up thinking about where you are tonight. But I'm not going to do that. Let me tell you another story. As a senior pastor, I was also in charge of going to some of the families that looked like God had blessed them more abundantly. They certainly had more at their disposal, larger assets under their control. And I remember one family and and talked to them and talked to them about the people that were coming and how we needed to be there for them. And they said, you know, David, we'd really like to help the church. But, you know, we want to make sure we have something to leave our kids. And so they not only did little, they did less. They did nothing. And I walked out of there a little bit angry because I thought about what our family had done. But, you know, over the months, anger sort of turned to sadness, especially when I heard that a few years later they died. And their children, who were all in their 50s at the time, already well established in life, were now in court fighting over what their parents had left them. How sad they must be each day on into eternity, not just because of what happened, but what didn't happen. They missed the joy of people that were going to come through heaven's gates, probably on a very regular basis, who were going to talk about being a part of that church and thanking everyone they can find who helped open the doors for them. Let me say it another way. There were a lot of people in this church who stepped forward about the same time 15 years ago. And because they stepped forward, And because they put some of their life on the line, the doors open. And people like Chad and Laura Pazin Porter walk through. And that's something that those of you who participated in that can enjoy, not just this morning for a moment, but you will get to enjoy forever. You know, I think the bottom line is just this. Life is short. And so the time to invest in what God wants done is now. And when we do, we're investing in things that last not only for today, but they last tomorrow and forever.